Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with Dry Eye Coach, and we're going to be recording one of our podcasts today. Our guest is Dr. Neil Desai. Neil is the Director of Cornea, Cataract, and Refractive Surgery at the Eye Institute of West Florida. He's also the founder and director of the Dry Eye Center of Excellence. And finally, he's the medical director of the Lions Eye Bank and Institute for Transplant Research. Neil, you wear a lot of hats. Welcome to the program today. <laughs> we all do, and it is really a pleasure to be here and uh, to share um, my thoughts on, on dry eye treatments with someone that's equally passionate about it as, as you are. Oh, well, thank you. We, we really appreciate your time today. And as you sort of alluded to, we're going to be talking a little bit about how to navigate dry eye treatment, how to, you know, really kind of think through the process in your practice. So, you know, in order to to kind of move it along, I'm going to jump right into questions with you. The first question I'm going to start with is one of the frustrations with dry eye disease in the past was the fact that patients were suffering terribly and we had so few effective treatment options. So how do you think new treatments are changing the way we look at dry eye disease? It's a great question. Um, there really has been an explosion, hasn't there, of different ways and modalities to both diagnose and treat dry eye. Um, and as a result, and, and sort of on that basis, we have a fuller understanding of what really causes dry eye. Uh, we have an understanding that there are, in fact, different types of dry eye. It's not just one sort of umbrella term, but, in fact, there are different etiologies and different types of dry eye syndrome. And um, as that sort of distinction has has become more clear to us, so, too, has sort of the single common denominator become more clear to us, and that is the, the single unifying role of inflammation in ocular surface disease. And so... As we, we take these changes in, we're certainly impacting how we as clinicians are, are viewing dry eye and, and dry eye patients. You know, back in the, in the old sort of dark ages, as I call them, of, of our understanding of dry eye, the only real sort of quote-unquote effective treatment was limited to artificial tears. And, and doctors would reach into the sample bucket of artificial tears and treat their patients rather dismissively sometimes treating dry eye patients as if they were crazy, it's all in your head, or you're just sort of a nuisance in my clinic. And because we know that dry eye and, and ocular surface disease as a whole is, is so incredibly common, um, we see it as one of the most more common reasons that patients come in to see an eye doctor. Um, it became the new normal. And we sort of, both patients and doctors alike, kind of just resigned ourselves to the failures of treatment and said, this is just a common condition and I got to live with it. And so it was kind of depressing, uh, to be quite honest. And I hope you're, I hope you're going to give us hope later. <laughs> yes. So, so here's, here's the bright light and here's, here's the hope the is that, light. you know, yeah. with, with all of these changes in diagnostics and therapeutics, I now kind of see a dry eye patient as like a real opportunity to intervene and kind of treat them in a more tailored and thoughtful kind of customized approach, treat them a bit more compassionately um, as though they have a real disease that we can really help with and, and improve their quality of life in, in so doing. And You know, I really, you know, I like what you said there. I mean, the, the tailored, we went from a catch-all, a catch-all diagnosis and a catch-all treatment where, like you said about the bucket, and you're just, you know, offering something, anything as a palliative exactly. treatment. 
to something that's tailored, and that is a really big swing in the pendulum. And I think, you know, I think a lot of practitioners are just now sort of catching the wave, if you will, of, of what dry eye can be in your practice. It sure can. And, you know, it's the right thing to do for patients, but it is um, sort of a, a tremendous practice builder, particularly when you consider the, the, the average demographics of a, of a dry eye patient. It's a female, 50-plus uh, head of household. It's quite well-educated, well-employed, has a higher-than-average income. They're taking care of elderly adults in-laws, uh, they're married, they take care of kids, and they're really the center cog of a very large sort of network of people, and they're, they're affecting a lot of different lives. And so if we can take that dry eye patient and who's been treated rather dismissively with, with no relief and convert them to someone that has improved quality of life because of our interventions and our, our tailored approach, well, that's a that's a a boon for the patient. It's a boon for the for our practices, right? Well, and you you raise a good point. You know, the demographically speaking, the the classic dry patient is the medical decision decision maker for the family, and as you said, yeah. the family can go to the younger generation as well as to the older. And I think a lot of practices think, I don't really care if that dry patient leaves, you know, because they perhaps are perceived as a nuisance patient or. You know, you don't feel like you're making the impact that you want to because you move the needle so slowly because of the chronicity of the disease. And you raise a great point. It's not one patient that's, that's leaving the office. It's potentially, you know, three, four, five patients that you might be losing. And I think a lot of times sure. practitioners don't really appreciate that potential loss. There's a, a, no pun intended here, but there's definitely a very broad ripple effect of dry eye right. and, and the treatment of right. dry eye. and. Um, you know, when that dry eye patient feels relief and, and has developed a rapport with you and, and sees you as a trusted resource for treatment and their husband wants a clear lens exchange or their parents or in-laws need cataract surgery or their son and daughter wants LASIK, well, guess where they're going and who's coming in with them, you know, for exactly. that visit, who's scheduling the visit. They, so, they become your biggest advocate, no doubt, and your they biggest really thing. They so really do. Is, the next thing I'd probably like to sort of touch on is there's, you know, as we've kind of talked historically about having few choices, now we have new treatments and new diagnostic te technologies that are going hand-in-hand. Hand. And because a more detailed diagnosis allows us to tailor that treatment, as you talked about for each patient, can you kind of talk about your approach to diagnosis? Sure. Um, you know, it really centers and, and the diagnostics are really aimed at doing two things. It's aimed at determining, A, what type of dry eye does this patient have? And certainly there can be a mix or an overlap of different types, but we have aqueous tear deficiency. We have classic evaporative uh, deficiency or, or evaporative tear loss, which really overlaps with lid margin disease or meibomian gland dysfunction. Um, we have a very rare sort of nutritional or mucin deficiency, the, the vitamin A deficiency type dry eye patients. And then there's sort of the, the non-biochemical dry eye patient, I call them mechanical dry eye patients that might have exposure keratitis because of some lid issue or there's an, um, a conjunctival chalasis issue. And because right. of the, the long-standing circulating inflammatory factors, now the, the tenons fascia is degenerated and they've got conjunctival chalasis, which 
certainly creates a, a mechanical irritation and, and an impediment to the normal spread of tears. When I get so, referrals for for dry conjunctival colitis, one of those things that is oftentimes overlooked, not documented, not acknowledged. I think that a lot of our colleagues perhaps see it in upon examination, but don't necessarily um, really take home anything or don't really acknowledge that as part of the process or p- potential mechanism. Yeah, and you know, oftentimes with with all of the things we're talking about um, in this in this podcast. You know, if we look, we'll see. And, um, you know, with conjunctival cholesis, one of my favorite ways to sort of see it is, A, both by history, the patient will complain of foreign body sensation, and there'll be the dry eye patients in all of our practices that don't just seem to respond to the typical topical therapies. And they just still complain of these dry eye-type symptoms. And if we look um, at the tear meniscus with fluoresce in the eye, we'll see what I like to call the Morse code meniscus, where it's sort of this dash, dot, dash, dot, interrupted tear meniscus as it goes from the canthus to the punctum. And it's it's a clear indication that there's conjunctival cholesis there that's overlapping perhaps some of these other forms of dry eye conditions. Right, right. Yeah, so So you've really kind of drilled down, this is a multifactorial condition. It could be any one of the things that you outlined. It could be more than one of the things that you outlined. So the treatment can take a number of different directions. So what are the underlying causes or symptoms do you focus on when you're making a treatment plan? What what really is sort of your, how do you get direction from your diagnostics to move towards treatment? So this is kind of multifactorial too, and, and it kind of goes on a case-by-case basis, but I'll try to kind of outline my thinking in all of this. Um, Despite there being all these different sources of dry eye, as I said, the unifying thing is the inflammation, and so we need to figure out what's the source of the inflammation. Is it behavioral, environmental? Is there an allergy component? We now have available in all of our offices um, doctor's allergy formula and office allergy testing, which is quite helpful. Um, mm-hmm. We have systemic evaluations to look for autoimmune conditions like Sjogren's and rheumatoid and lupus. Um, right. We've got better diagnosis for Sjogren's, um, the show test uh, that looks at those three new markers for earlier diagnosis of Sjogren's. Um, we should look at their skin, take a look at the big picture, the patient as a whole, and, and determine if maybe there's an element of rosacea or ocular rosacea. So we're really trying to figure out the source of the inflammation. And on the flip side, as you were asking about symptoms, um, the kind of the main key three things that I look at are, is the, is the patient's vision fluctuating or do they have fatiguing vision? They sit down and, and try to read and 10 minutes later, it, it sort of fogs out or they get, they get fatigued reading. That really suggests to me that there's an evaporative component or an MGD component. Um, perhaps they right. have some mild ocular rosacea. That's going to determine one path of treatment. Um, is there redness, lid margin, uh, inflammation, phalangiectasias, mattering, blepharitis? Again, that sort of leads down the evaporative MGD rosacea route. Um, is there pain with blinking? Um, is there dry eye symptoms bad all day long versus just as the day goes on? And this will sort of help begin to distinguish the patients that may have CCH or conjunctive achalasis versus the classic aqueous tear deficiency. Um, 
And then finally, do their tears seem to only help, their artificial tears only seem to help for a short period of time? And this could sort of uh, elicit sort of a CCH presence as well and suggest a mechanical approach um, that we might take for right. the dry eye treatment. You know, you mentioned rosacea several times. And, you know, in, in my clinical practice, I found that a lot of doctors don't necessarily ask the question about rosacea. Have you been previously diagnosed by a dermatologist or primary care internist? Or perhaps they assume because it wasn't offered as a part of the initial medical history that the patient is negative. Or perhaps even if they ask the patient, have you been diagnosed, the patient says no, they take that as a no when what we see behind the microscope as telangiectasias at the lid margin may say otherwise. So I think sometimes we it's dismissed a little too early diagnostically, and I believe that 20% of patients may have uh, ophthalmic uh, aspects of ocularization before they have dermatological signs. So, you know, I think too early in the process, sometimes that's set by the wayside when that could be the origin that really is troubling the patient. So, it could be dry, all right. With, um, the, I appreciate that. Oftentimes, we, we <laughs> see patients that, that come in um, with signs and symptoms of ocularization and their dermatologist, it maybe doesn't rise to the level of sort of dermatologic or facial rosacea um, that a dermatologist right. might classically see, but certainly in our world, it's a it's a major player. And depending on what part of the country you are, depending you know on access to medical care and so forth, they may just not have seen a dermatologist. You know, they just may not have been front of mind for them or an opportunity. So dry eyes, we've established, and, and certainly you've kind of outlined, is an inflammatory disease. And even when we talk about MGD being the underlying cause, inflammation also the, can be the underlying cause of the MGD that we see. So can you talk about the cycle of inflammation and how it leads to MGD and dry eye? Sure. So, uh, and this is really, this, this whole conversation and this question really forms the basis of and the foundation for a lot of the patient education that we do, and we talk about this vicious cycle where um, any trigger of inflammation might start this process of tear film instability, where it's not just the quantity of tears, but it's the quality of those tears and how stable those tears are from one blink to the next. And that tear film instability and the inflammation leads to the dry eye symptoms, uh, the irritation, which then leads to maybe more inflammation, and the cycle continues and gets worse and worse over time. And I oftentimes find myself explaining to patients who say, well, you say my dry eyes are bad and I've got dry eye syndrome, but I've got excessive tearing and my eyes feel fine. Right. So how is it possible to have <laughs> dry eyes? And yeah, the, 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 the overproduction conundrum is always really a tough one to explain. How are my right. eyes so wet, and yet you call them so dry? Totally right. And so we all experience this, that funny look from patients that say, what is this guy talking about? Dry yeah. eye. And yeah. so we kind of take the time to explain um, and, and educate the patients that it's not just the quantity of tears. You have plenty of quantity, but if the tears are not good quality, then that's really the issue. And right. um, I don't delve into this uh, with my patients, but for all the other clinicians out there, I really like to talk about ocular surface diseases, the umbrella term, um, and inflammation as sort of a spectrum of diseases 
on a, mm-hmm. a sort of a timeline and a spectrum of severity and longevity. So all of right. the ocular surface disease that we see, dry eye at the very beginning, um, EBMD or basal membrane dystrophy, Salzman's nodular, re- recurrent erosion syndrome, um, CCH development at the, at the tail end of that spectrum, all of these sort of are unified by the fact that we have overexpression of inflammatory mediators, those matrix metalloproteases. And that's really what unifies all of these seemingly different conditions. Um, And so if we can target our treatment to that inflammation, we're going to be able to break that cycle. If we can, uh, you know, treat any other comorbidity like EBMD or Salzman's nodular, um, and then we can prevent recurrence by treating the underlying source of that inflammation. So speaking of that, how do you address the inflammatory component of dry pathology? So what are some of your go-to treatments to, to modulate that inflammation? Sure. So I kind of explain uh, to patients that it's sort of a step-ladder approach. And, and, you know, we've done our own internal studies of, of our own dry eye patients that, that come to our center. And what we found, surprisingly, was that the average patient that comes to us has seen three other doctors or more in the last five years for the same dry eye complaints, and and they've sort of, quote, failed treatment. And so our approach has to be inherently a little bit different than what they've experienced elsewhere. So we take that thoughtful sort of tailored diagnostic approach, and then we talk about treatments. The first stage is really addressing environmental behavior behavioral and allergic components. So are they using a computer screen? Do they sleep under uh, a ceiling fan? Um, do they have an allergy component to this that's been untreated? We identify people, those. I have to say, Neil, pe- people love ceiling fans. <laughs> they there's do. Been, <laughs> there's been near, near divorce situations over ceiling fans amongst my patients. Right. So <laughs> hard, to, hard to part with a ceiling fan there. So you, you right. look at their environmental conditions as well. All right. Exactly. And we, we what, remind else, them of, what else do you find? We, we remind them of the 2020 rule with all the screen time that we all have nowadays, um, 30, 20 second breaks every 20 minutes. And then we really kind of delve in into this sort of inflammatory treatment. So we use the typical immunomodulators like steroids, mm-hmm. cyclosporin, lafitograph, um, not as end-stage treatments anymore. Um, right. These are, in my clinic, first-line therapies because we have to start attacking that, that underlying inflammation. And then I start looking for systemic reasons. Is there a rheumatologic or a, an autoimmune component to this? Um, I'll start working potentially with a rheumatologist if our initial um, laboratory workup reveals anything leading to or pointing to an autoimmune cause. And then we look at their skin, we look at their lid margin, and if they have MGD, um, ocular rosacea signs, lid margin phalangiectasias, we may offer them IPL, we could offer them mm-hmm. lip flow, we discuss serum eye drops, and we kind of talk to patients about this step-ladder approach. So we start with simple things, and then we go from there, depending on how they respond. You know, some of the listeners out there may think, well, Neil, it sounds like you're really aggressive with your eye. And I think Perhaps if I were to sort of kind of take, have your takeaway, is it a lot of these patients have kind of bounced around. They've been looking for someone to be aggressive. And a lot, there's a lot of foot dragging out there, if you will, amongst eye care providers when it comes to dry eye. 
And I think we have a lot of accessibility to diagnostics now. We have a lot of accessibility to, you know, in-office treatments as well as pharmaceutical options. And it sounds like you don't you don't mess around. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I know. And and I could do more of the same, but that wouldn't do much good for the patient. And, and it's sort of the definition of insanity, right? Um, we keep doing <laughs> right. the same thing over and over it's again. It's a different outcome. So, right, exactly. you know, I, I, my aim is to try to give these patients as much relief as quickly as possible, and that's how I'm sort of choosing my approach, um, you know, carefully and thoughtfully. And not every patient is going to be the same, but um, I do have sort of a protocol, and I don't see every single dry eye patient myself. We utilize PAs. We have a team of optometrists that are really passionate about dry eye treatments as well. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got some, some cornea specialists in my group that help me out with, with ocular surface disease management as well. And so in our office, we have a, a fairly well laid out, um, you know, rational approach to dry eye. I'm happy to share that with anyone. If you emailed me at, at decidevision2020 at gmail.com, happy to share that mm-hmm. sort of protocol, sort of a flow chart um, of our approach. But you're, you're right. We, we hit it hard, we hit it fast, um, because my goal is to get these patients an improvement in their quality of life, because this really does affect almost every aspect of their lives. And um, the faster I can get them, them better and, and treat their underlying causes, the happier they're going to be and, and the, 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 the more relief they're going to have. And, and it's right. far more efficient for me to do it that way, too, rather than having so, you know multiple visits over time and, and a long Right. You know, chair time with a patient that's very frustrated. And it can be more efficient ultimately as well to be more aggressive. So if you're, you mentioned intense false light. So if you're treating a patient with IPL, I think perhaps one of the questions that a lot of practitioners may want to know is, do you treat the facial telangiectasias as well, or is this sort of an isolated area that you're typically treating for, for telangiectasias? Sure. So the, the treatment zone for, for IPL that I use is from lateral campus to lateral campus, including mm-hmm. over the bridge of the nose. And I go as mm-hmm. inferiorly as basically the lower face or, you know, the lower cheeks. Um, okay. And that's my typical treatment zone. Whenever yep. I do anything, yep. you know, all of us in our practices, we, we do well for patients and our practice if we're always looking to add value to any service we provide. And so in talking to patients about dry eye and, and the role that IPL might play in their treatment, I always like to talk about the historical context of where IPL even came from in, in the use right. of dry eye. From the anecdotal you know, observations, um, very brilliant observations, that patients who had this for cosmetic reasons for facial blemishes, telangiectasias, photorejuvenation of their skin, their dry eyes got better. Their rosacea got better. And so right. Rolando Toyos, I think, is, is widely credited for making that observation. And we started doing this for, for medical purpose, for the treatment of dry eye. And so they began to understand sort of that this sort of, at the moment, considered a cosmetic treatment. There's not an insurance coverage for it. But when I do this treatment and I'm doing it for dry eye, there's a very high level based on the education we've done, very high level of, of patient acceptance for this treatment. It's very successful. It works. Um, very, very few patients would be non-responders where their rosacea 
um, has caused caused atrophy of the glands itself. Those patients may not may not respond as well as we would like. They're perhaps too far gone. But while I'm doing the pa- the patient's treatment for the average patient, um, I'll sort of say, hey, I've, I notice you've got some phalangiectasias on your chin and rosacea on your chin or on your lower face or on your forehead. Do you mind if I treat that at the same time? And you should see the smile that I get. Like, wow, you, you're willing to do that? And for no extra, yeah, I'm like, I'm here anyway. If I can do that for you and it's going to make you happy, great. And and let's just do it. And I'm going to venture to say, I'm going to venture to say you've never had anyone turn you down. Is that fair? Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's you're, a, you're batting a value-added service. Exactly. Right. And so right. when they start to notice not only that their dry eye symptoms are getting better, but their face looks beautiful and their skin looks rejuvenated. Right. Um, it's they just sure, such a value. I sure add. love Dr. Desai at that point. They're, they're, right, they're definitely exactly. in your court. So, so um, yeah, just, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, well I was going to ask say, you. Know, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Whitney. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> We're gonna <laughs> kind of crossing over there. So, do you do you combine it? Do you combine IPL with additional treatments, or is it a standalone for you? What, which the or is it patient to patient? It, it's definitely patient to patient. Um, what I usually do, we do offer Lipiflow as well as IPL, and right. we've we've sort of developed an internal protocol based on on what I've observed in terms of the response when we combine these treatments. Um, certainly IPL, I've been doing it since uh, 2008 um, for dry eye as a standalone treatment, and it certainly right. works. Um, typically, the protocol is to get four treatments um, spaced about two to four weeks apart, and then we convert mm-hmm. to maintenance treatments at single treatments um, by like about four months after the series. And then right. we start stretching the interval between maintenance treatments out further and further until patients are typically getting one IPL treatment as a maintenance per year. Right. Um, what we notice is that patients typically, and I tell patients this so that we set expectations right, patients don't notice really any change or any benefit to the treatment after the first and second treatment, typically, when it's done as a standalone. It's after the third and fourth that they begin to notice the symptoms improving. And they say, hey, this is, this is actually working. But when we combine that um, with Lipiflow, and my protocol is to do the Lipiflow first and then immediately follow that Lipiflow treatment by their first IPL treatment, that combination, that synergistic combination, because the Lipiflow is doing such a good job of unclogging the gland, and then the IPL is working on the source of inflammation and the reason the glands got clogged in the first place, um, we're noticing that patients typically notice a benefit sooner. So instead of treatment three or four, they're starting to notice some improvements after one or two treatments. And um, they're certainly needing fewer maintenance treatments or we're able to stretch the interval between maintenance treatments further uh, faster. And then... I you know I can I couldn't agree with you more. I think that you know you talked about the inflammation earlier in our conversation. I think a lot of our colleagues get in a camp. They are either in the obstruction camp or the inflammation camp, and they don't necessarily combine those two uh, processes together. And they they're very intermingled. 
And I think, you know, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. If you can evacuate the glands, sort of hit the reset button with doing liver flow, really positioning the patient for a better initial experience with IPL. And then you go forward with IPL, you're, you're addressing both, as you said so beautifully. Yeah, I, I use the analogy of, you know, if you rotor-rootered the, the, the clogged toilet, but then you didn't fix the reason the toilet was getting clogged repetitively to begin with, you, you're going to mm-hmm. have to rotor root repetitively, and you're only going to get so far. But if you treat the source of the pollution, the source of the inflammation, well, now you're now you're really getting somewhere. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to borrow that analogy from you or not. <laughs> <laughs> that <one. laughs> we could use the kitchen sink. <laughs> that's such that's such a, a male doctor uh, analogy there. <laughs> so. You know, Dr. Desai, you're a leader in ocular surface disease, and I'm sure you always have an eye, no pun intended, on what's in the future. What are you looking forward to in the future for dry eye? Sure. Um, One one last note I just wanted to mention on on the IPL bit. Sure. Um, We can certainly talk a lot about, you know, efficacy, um, anecdotal observations, there are a number of, of papers in the peer-reviewed literature now that, that support the use of IPL and with the flow together um, right. on any number of metrics uh, that you might want to look at, from OSDI to tear breakup, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the one thing that sort of matters to me most is patients' responses. And when I have patients call months ahead of their, their scheduled maintenance treatment, for a voluntarily scheduled earlier maintenance, and they say, Doc, I think I want another treatment. Can you fit me in earlier? That tells me everything I need to know about efficacy and value. Um, right. And, and the price point, because they're paying, you know, out of pocket for this service, um, and when they're doing so voluntarily uh, at a, on an earlier basis, it tells me everything that I know about whether or not it's actually working and patients see that it's working, and whether or not it's worth every penny that it, that it might cost them out of pocket. Right. Well, you know, patients, you know, everyone's protective of their their investments, and this is sure. an investment for people because, you know, it, it's, it's something, as you mentioned, they're paying for out of pocket, and, and they're not going to continue with something. You know, if you had something that you, you weren't paying for, maybe your insurance covered it, you might sort of stumble through it a few more times to see if it worked or maybe I just haven't received the benefit yet. But you're exactly right. If people are willing to pay, willing to travel perhaps to your office, you know, from further distances to get this particular treatment, then the, the anecdotal and clinical evidence is, is really what's so important because we want our patients at the end of the day to not only be happy but to also, you know, feel better and really get that quality of life back that a lot of them are missing. You're right. You're right. So you asked the question about what I'm looking forward to in the future as far as dry eye right. uh, treatments go. Um, there's really three areas that are sort of piquing my interest at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. One is the increasing role for biologics um, in terms of right. using biological agents like amniotic membrane-derived products, cryopreserved amniotic membranes that really are modifying the immune response. Um, and allowing for regenerative healing to occur on the ocular surface. And then there's a lot of uh, future and and current research going on at various delivery mechanisms to deliver those biological factors. So um, the amniotic membrane is really sort of a delivery vehicle 
but uh, there's a, a number of uh, research studies ongoing looking at is there a, a drop form, a powder form, a gel form right. that uh, allows us to deliver these in, in patients and that might be self-administered in the future. So that would be a, a real win for our patients because it's really driving at the root heart of the inflammatory or immune response um, basis for the dry eye. I, the other I area enthusiasm for that, for sure, because yeah. I think what we find is, you know, they if you have used membranes before, you know, some of those people need ongoing, you know, care for chronicity, and it's, it's I think having a self-administered option would be ideal. Sure. In its current form, the amniotic membranes are sort of like, you know, putting the fire out, but then you still need chronic treatment, um, you know, long-term treatment. It's not a, it's not an end-all, be-all, um, but it, it certainly does help kind of put the, the forest fire out so that the long-term treatments work a little bit better. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of potential in, in the role that biologics might play in this area. Um, something else that I find completely fascinating is, is relatively new, and that's the, the whole idea of neurostimulation. Um, right. You know, Allergan released the, the True Cure device that basically hijacks the, the uh, nerve pathway for the production of basal tear secretion rate. Um, and so that's like a totally different pathway to treat dry eyes um, right. by utilizing Very the novel. nerve pathways. So kind of neat. Um, and then the final area that I'm, I'm interested in, and, and this is perhaps a little bit far off, but um, just recently uh, there was a paper in the journal Nature that showed that um, cells that are infected by Epstein-Barr virus, which is incredibly common, um, most right. patients have been exposed to Epstein-Barr without really even knowing it. But these cells that are affected by Epstein-Barr, they showed in this paper that um, the, the proteins expressed by these cells bind to chromosomal loci that um, increase the risk of development of certain systemic conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, type 1 diabetes, um, celiac disease, juvenile arthritis, MS, wow. uh, Sjogren's syndrome. So a whole host of autoimmune conditions. And so um, the, the excitement for me really centers around the idea that if we can develop a drug, a, a sort of designer drug, that inhibits the expression of these proteins or binds to these proteins and inhibits their, their uh, action, we may be able to actually modulate a, a disease process before it starts. And so there's a real hope that we can address the inflammatory condition um, and the systemic conditions before they cause all of these late sequelae like dry eye problems and, and other systemic problems. It's a really fascinating area of research. That is. That is. You've really given us a lot of food for thought, not only clinically, uh, not, you know, the reasons to take drive seriously, what it means to your patients, what it means to the practice, diagnostic and therapeutic considerations, but also, you know, what the, what the future may bring for a dry eye disease. So I have to tell you, Neil, it's been a really enlightening conversation this afternoon. I really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Such a pleasure. Look forward to talking to right. you again soon. Thank you, and thank you for joining us for Dry Eye Coach Podcast. We'll see you next time.